0: You can turn there, but before we get there, I want to talk about some other places in the scripture. Back in the days of the laws of Moses, there were many regulations governing the lives of God's people. These regulations were divine law, God-given laws. And if you kept them, your life would be very recognizable. You would be very different from your neighbor's or the other peoples around you. In fact, if you just started to read Leviticus chapter 19, just that chapter, for example, you would find divine laws about how to regard your parents, what to do on Saturday. You would find warnings to keep away from idols. You would find out how to offer sacrifices. You would find out how to harvest your fields. It would tell you how to collect the fruit off your trees and vines. You would find laws about stealing. You'd find laws about lying. You'd find um, instructions about paying your laborers their wages. You would find rules about playing mean tricks on people with handicaps. You would find laws about favoritism and revenge and hatred and love. You would find rules on how to breed your cattle, uh, sow your fields, and choose the fabric that goes into your clothing. You would be told about how to eat meat, What to do with psychics and the Psychic Friends Network, how to cut your hair, whether or not you should have tattoos or carvings in your skin, how to treat old people and strangers, and how to weigh things when you're going to sell it in the marketplace. All in Leviticus chapter 19. And more. That's just some of it. Before any of it is listed or explained, however, these words God speaks as a preface to all of those rules. Leviticus 19.2 Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's the foundation for all the rules. Holiness. God is holy and those who live by his name are to be holy too. The word holy is very simple. sounds so lofty. It just means to set apart, to be set apart. God's people are to be set apart from the world's people. Some of the laws are obviously just moral things. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus spoke the the second great commandment, that's where he pulled that from. The greatest, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He got from Deuteronomy. Or Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. God wanted his people to be morally set apart, different from the world. Some of the regulations are are more cultural. Don't wear mixed threads. Don't sow two kinds of grain in the same field and, and cross them. Don't breed two different kinds of cattle together. Why not? Why not do that? What's wrong with wearing blended fabrics? Well, that's not a moral issue to wear blended fabrics, but ancient people the people that lived in Palestine, the people the Jews would be around, believed that there were magic powers that work when you did that. It's called sympathetic magic, a blending of forces or spirits which makes things work even better. So should God's people rely on superstitious magic for their crops to grow and their fields to prosper? No. In fact, they shouldn't even look like that's what they're doing. Even if they know that's baloney, he didn't want them to even look like they were of the world and doing what the world was doing. They are to be holy, set apart. And since the neighbors believe these practices have spiritual power, God's people weren't supposed to do them at all. Tattooing and mutilating the body had spiritual meanings as well, so they weren't to do that, God says. Lest your neighbors think you're relying on or turning to false deities or spirits or magical forces instead of Him. So there was to be a marked and noticeable difference in the way God's people lived and conducted their affairs and the way their pagan neighbors conducted their lives. They were to be, God's people were to be holy or set apart. Why? Because God is holy. Perfectly just and good and right in all that he does. Now, the word holy or set apart is the same root word that occurs in the word sanctify. Same word, same Greek word. To sanctify something, It's just to set it apart for a special purpose, Uh, usually a religious or uh, holy sort of purpose. But that's all the same idea. Those who are called and saved by God are to be sanctified people, set apart, marked out differently from the world. That basic principle of Leviticus 19:2, you shall be holy for I am holy is repeated in the New Testament and first Peter. 1 Peter 1.14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter affirms for the Christian the necessity of our holiness. Be holy, set apart in all your behavior, he says. Be sanctified. And sanctification is the theme of Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, which we began studying last week. Now, sanctification is a very important issue for many reasons, but in Romans, Paul discusses sanctification because it is integral to salvation, but also because he needs to explain holiness in the light of what he's been teaching in chapters 3 through 5, which is justification by faith alone. Hey, stop using big words. I'm trying not to, but you've got to use some big words. A man is justified, made right with God, that's what that means, by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3.28 says that. You can turn a page over and say, yeah, it does say that. A man is made right with God, he's justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has to do with who you believe in. Law has no place, divine law, regulations, rules, has no place in making sinners right with God. you know why? How can law make a sinner right with God when the very definition of being a sinner is that you violated law? How can law save you when you've broken it? It can't. All it can do is condemn you. In fact, the only beneficial thing the law can do for us is show us how wicked we are. And that's what he was saying at the end of chapter 5. It can open our eyes, but it can't save us. We are saved, as Paul has made abundantly clear in chapter 3, 4, and 5 of Romans as we've looked at over the last months, we are saved by God's grace, by a gift of righteousness from God brought with Christ's blood and received by faith alone. People don't understand how God can love and save sinners by grace apart from law. So questions start popping up, and that's what happens in chapter 6 at the very beginning. Paul is quoting the kind of question he would get. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? See, in chapter 5, verse 20, he said the law came in that transgression might increase. In other words, when there's laws, there's more sin. Because people are so wicked that the more rules they have, the more they want to break them. So God's law actually brought more sin into the world just because people are so rebellious in their hearts. But he said, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law did have this wonderful function of awakening us to our sinfulness. You don't really think about your sin until you see the law and say, oh gosh, I haven't kept that, I've broken that, oh, I've broken that. And it awakens you to your own wickedness. So grace abounds all the more, he says, because God is bringing salvation through this process. Verse 21, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, then the wise guy says, oh, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase then? If grace abounds all the more when there's law, well, let's just keep on sinning. I mean, if God likes to save sinners by grace, we ought to just like make Him happy, right? No, no. Verse 2, Paul says, No. May it never be. No way. Drive the thought from your head. And his explanation of why grace doesn't produce sin, but rather produces holiness, is now to be fully discussed. That's what he's doing. It has to do with our union with Christ. We looked at last week, the first few verses there. We said last time we are joined to Adam by birth and carry his nature. And we're joined to Christ by faith. Right? Just as truly as we're sons of Adam by birth, just as certainly we are joined to Christ by faith. And because of this union with Christ, we went to the cross with Him in a very real sense. And we have risen with him in a very real sense verse 3 of romans chapter 6 do you not know that all who have been baptized and we talked about that last week he's really talking about spirit baptism of which water baptism is a an outward symbol of what's already happened in the heart when the holy spirit immersed you into the body of christ and brought you to him do you not know that all of us have been baptized into christ jesus have been baptized into his death Therefore, having been buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of His resurrection. So the New Testament refers over and over again to this union with Christ. You see it all the time. In Christ. In Christ. We are in Christ. We have this union with Christ by faith. And it's a finished reality. It is a, a dumb deal. We've died with Him. We've resurrected with Him. All past tense. It's not pretend. It, it's not a happy thought. In some profound sense, because we are baptized by God's Spirit into Christ, we are in some sense already raised and glorified with Him. Look at Colossians chapter 3. It's over a few books or you can just listen. But he says it so clearly there. It's right after Philippians. Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, past tense, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on the earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. What an amazing sentence. You should just camp on Colossians 3.3 3 for a couple of weeks and just think about that. It's an amazing thing. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. What a great text. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our union with Christ is our victory, it's our surety, it's our anchor, and it's unshakable. He is in heaven, and He can't be touched there. And we are with Him there already. We're already there by virtue of our union with Him, our spiritual union with Him. So our sins went to the cross and were dealt with there by virtue of our union with Him. And in His resurrection, we have eternal life, a life guaranteed for eternity, but a life we can walk in right now, Romans 6.4 says. We can walk in newness of life. And that walk is Sanctification the separated life, the life that is distinct from the world because it is centered around the Lord Jesus Christ and lived in Him. Romans chapter 6 is explaining this reality of what it means to be in Christ, but he doesn't stop there. Paul wants us to live a sanctified life. So he is instructing us on how to get there. So pay attention for the next three chapters because it's really going to be important stuff. He's going to discuss how we should think, in what we should do. And if you follow this prescription for the sanctified life, you will have a new life. I mean, a radically different life. But you know, you just can't do chapters 6 through 8 without chapters 3 through 5. Without justification, there is no sanctification. Only religion. That's really important. Religion is not what this is all about. It's all about God redeeming lost and sinful men and women and restoring them to himself in peace and joy and holiness. That's what it's about. It's not about rituals and systems and churches and all that kind of stuff, except as God has ordained those things. Justification is how God made us right with him in Christ. Sanctification is how that works itself out in our lives every day thereafter. So let's look at Paul's directions for the sanctified life. It begins with information. If you notice verse 6, Romans 6, 6, he begins with the word knowing. Knowing this. Knowing this that our old self was crucified, past tense, with him, that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be Slaves to sin. This is why we don't continue in sin, as the wise guy in verse 1 suggested. Being justified by grace doesn't mean you don't live a life that is holy, that honors God and its habits and choices and lifestyle and affections. Quite the contrary. The old self, the pre-converted man, that person who had only been born once, that child of Adam, that person was crucified with Jesus. Jesus. Why that, that is a purpose word in Greek, a purpose clause they call it, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's why that was done. So the purpose of our redemption is that we should not be slaves of sin. Of course we shouldn't continue in sin, he's saying, because that's against everything that this is all about. That expression, body of sin, refers to that old corrupted nature. That rebellious self, that prone to sin, that defiance of God, making our own rules, picking and choosing the commandments we're going to keep and the ones we're going to reject as though we were gods ourselves. I like that one. And number three and number five are okay, but six and seven, I don't like those. Can't do that. That person, the person that doesn't love God and all that he stands for, all that he stands for, that person died with Jesus, if you will. And that justified individual has a whole new disposition, a whole new outlook, a new life. He's becoming a sanctified individual, a different person from those around him. Verse 7 makes a very obvious point here. Dead people don't sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Isn't that true? Have you ever really watched dead people sinning? They don't do it. Once you're gone, your sin and days are over. Well, in a very real sense, a Christian is a person whose old self is gone and whose sin and days are over. Now, right away, if you're a Christian, you're thinking, I don't know, you don't know me very well. Yes, I do. I know me. See, I know. I know what you're thinking. We're getting there. Let's keep on with Paul here. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, notice in verse 9, you've got that word knowing again. It's talking about what we should understand. Knowing what? That Christ conquered death, he died to sin, bearing our penalty, but he is risen, and as he lives to God... So must we. So verse 11 says, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. That's part of the prescription. Consider yourselves. Now he's asking you to do something. That word consider is the same word that appeared so many times in chapter 4. It's the same Greek word, it's just translated differently in English here. It's that word reckon. I think the King James might still say reckon here just means to count if you have an NIV that's what it says count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God consider yourself look at your situation as a believer and consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus now that's kind of a trick right he's suggesting sort of a trick like one way to like change our behavior is to pretend that we're like a new person that's what he's saying right Sort of like a brainwash yourself thing with like this little mantra, I am dead to sin. 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 sin. I'm a new person. I'm a new person. I'm alive to God. You know, that might work. Sort of as this like Christian behavior modification program thing. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about pretending. This is simply a description of a capacity that you have been given in what the Bible calls the new birth, regeneration. Regeneration. If you are a person who has received the grace of salvation in Christ and you are born from above, you know what Paul's talking about. When you trusted Christ, you changed. You have an actually a different view of just about everything, don't you? Didn't things just change? Now, you're not perfect, are you? No. But things did change. God suddenly became very real to you The Bible actually started making sense when you read it. You know, when I read the Bible before I was a Christian, it was like, what is this stuff? And after you're a Christian, it's like, oh yeah, you know, some of it's still hard, but yeah, I'm getting it. Some things you used to just really enjoy, you find detestable now. And some things you thought were strange or silly now seem really beautiful and true. The world seems quite different to you. Nobody on earth imposed this change on you it just happened somebody that's outside the earth imposed this change on you it's a work of god's spirit that's the new birth the awakening of the spirit of god at work and part of that new birth is a holy h o l y holy disposition you are drawn to and you approve of what is good and pure and wholesome and true in your heart you've been set free you know there's a lot of talk about free will and we'll be talking a lot about free will when we get to chapter 9 10 and 11 but before you were saved by god your will had an extraordinarily limited freedom you could only choose between sins and incoherent and inconsistent philosophies and religions that's all you could do That's all you had the capacity to choose from. Some choose sins of degradation, cheap thrills, and bodily stimulation. Other people choose pride and superiority and moral self-will. And other people choose sins of autonomy, putting oneself in God's place, making up their own rules. Other people choose sins of idolatry, substituting man-made religion for divine truth. There's all kinds of choices you can make, but it's limited to wickedness, an error. Apart from God, you could not choose genuine righteousness if you wanted to and you don't want to. It's not even an available choice. You could not, even if you wanted to, live a holy life and you didn't want to. But with the new birth, you have a much freer will. Now you can choose to follow new God-given capacities. You can choose Him every day. Every moment, if you would. You can. You can choose not to sin in any way. Now, we all do. I know that. We all stumble. But you've got the freedom not to. Part of succeeding in choosing a holy life is simply knowing that you can. And that's what he's saying. This is a divine promise that in Jesus Christ you have a capacity to overcome any sin in your life. And I'll tell you as a person that's dealt with people with this issue for years including myself, you can, you really can overcome any kind of sin. You think of the worst sin you can imagine? I know somebody that's overcome that sin. Had genuine victory over that sin. It's possible. And it's promised. Most sins are habitual It's just a way, you become automatic. It's automatic ways of behaving or responding. By the power of God, that habit can be broken completely. Step one in sanctification is knowing. Knowing you don't have to do that anymore. You have a real spirit-given capacity to choose a new way to behave differently. It's God's gift. It's not pretending. It's recognizing a new reality that's really there. So, part of a Christian's routine in daily prayer is to acknowledge to God that we have died with Christ and thank Him for our new life in Christ and that capacity that He's given us to resist evil. And frankly, most Christians just don't do that. And then they get frustrated by their sinful habits. And I know, I know somebody out there is thinking, well, I tried that, but ten minutes later I fell into a sin again. I got this craving for whateverness and, and I gave into it. What am I supposed to do? Well, when that craving started, you should have gotten on your knees, gotten right back in prayer, thanked God for your new capacity to resist evil, and I won't do that today. That's what you should do. I am free from sin's grip. You are free. Just make the choice. Stay with it. The problem is people usually just give up. Because, probably because they really want to keep doing what they were doing. I know when people come to me and say, I've prayed about that! I've prayed! I'm pray. I know they've prayed maybe, maybe a little. But not... They want you to think they've prayed a lot and that God failed them. But in reality, they prayed maybe a couple of times and real briefly and then just kind of went back and did their thing. That's really the truth, isn't it? We'd rather God be blamed for not fixing us than admitting how little we really do pray about these things and how little we really apply ourselves to the means that God has given us to succeed. There's more you need to do. We've talked about our mindset, our thinking. The next step also involves the will. Verse 12 Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You can see the will here. You're free to choose good or evil, sin or God. Your will is the central concern now. You are not biology, you know that. You're not just biology. The world thinks you are, but you're not. You have a spirit that was made by God. And if you are a Christian, your spirit has been made alive by God and redeemed by God and awakened by the Spirit of God. So now you can choose what to do with your body. Maybe before you couldn't, but now you can. You have this instrument. Your eyes, your hands, your mouth. And you decide who this instrument will serve today. You can yield it to every impulse of your flesh and give yourself to sin, tell that lie, slander that coworker, covet that woman, break that promise, reach for that bottle or that drug. You can do that or you can take your instrument and you can give it to God present it to him as an instrument of righteousness, a weapon for him to use in this world, and tell the truth, and bless the co-worker, and honor that woman, and keep that promise, and break the bottle, and throw away the narcotic. You can do that. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We really just don't do that often. You should do that every day. Present your body, your members, as an instrument of righteousness to God. Do this and you will have substantial victory. Perfection, not in this life, but substantial victory. You can expect and enjoy the freedom that God's Spirit brings and delight, literally delight in holiness. And something else will happen you'll start to see God using you in ways you never could have imagined. You know, I am plagued by the verse in James that says the prayers of a righteous man can accomplish much. Because I think when I'm not being very righteous, I'm actually letting you down. Because my prayers are probably not as effective as they should be. And that in itself should be a spark if indeed we love one another to be godly just so our prayers will have more weight. But you must follow this prescription. And you know, if you don't have a regular devotional time, this will never happen. How can you do this without time with God? You've got to choose to do that. And for most of us, that's probably the crucial point, the real test, the real dividing line there. Am I going to spend that time with God every day to make sure that I've done this every day? Get to know the God that has saved you in His Word, in prayer. And know that righteousness is actually a genuine option. And present your body as a tool for Him to use. Do it every day. Every minute if it takes that. Grace is the only true path to holiness. And those that insist on law as a means of sanctification will fail because there's no power in law. It only shows us the standard we failed to live up to, as I said. But by receiving God's grace, we receive this capacity and a desire for true holiness. And that is what every Christian should seek. Verse 14 For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord, we can be so distracted by the world sometimes and fill ourselves and our minds and our existence with so much stuff that we don't even consider the simple things you give us to do, the simple prescription for the holy life. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the time, the consideration, the grace to weigh what you yourself command and that we could experience, and maybe in small ways at first, the power and the joy in a holy life. And may that excite us to greater holiness and sanctification, not in pride, but in absolute humility, to be your servants and to love with a love like Jesus and change the world. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.